0: Hello and welcome to Sounds Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I am Antonio Sampaio. So today we're picking the brains of three experts on the issue of Policing. The killing of George Floyd, a black man, earlier this year in the United States, sparked a widespread debate about police conduct and relations with marginalized communities. And this is a debate that several developing countries know all too well. And our aim today is to explore the international challenges and lessons on policing violent cities. Our guests have conducted research in Brazil. Kenya, Somalia, and other settings. So I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Inácio Cano, member of the Laboratory for the Analysis of Violence at the Rio de Janeiro State University in Brazil. He's currently a visiting researcher at the Safety Lab in Cape Town. I'm also joined by Dr. Alice Hills, visiting professor at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom and author of several books on policing and security in cities. And also with us is Dr. Tessa Difun, assistant professor at the Department of Cultural Anthropology at Utrecht University, where she she currently conducts a research project on policing in Kenya. So if I may, I will start west and make our way east. Inacio, I often see Rio de Janeiro as a case study in military documents even about urban warfare, reflecting the frequent armed clashes fought between drug trafficking groups and the military police there. So why has policing Rio become so violent, even more so than uh, most other cities in Brazil and even Latin America?
1: The whole security paradigm in Brazil, in particular in cities like Rio de Janeiro, is a military paradigm. It's not just the police. The whole strategy, the dynamics, um, the tactics, everything is militarized. And because it is conceived as a war between criminal groups and against criminal groups, then police has become a kind of military organization with huge... um, Firepower, um, bulletproof vehicles, bulletproof um, helicopters, um, helicopters attacking from the air. So it's a, a whole scenario of the, an Afghanistan or a Vietnam movie that you can see in Rio de Janeiro. And it's considered normal because the problem is seen as a military problem to start
0: with. Mm. Um- Tessa, I recently visited Nairobi, and some of the problems voiced by slum communities there regarding police abuse sound similar to what I've observed in Rio and what Inacio was, was describing, this, this idea of uh, the police being seen as uh, brutal and, and, um, and abusive. How have the police approached security in Nairobi's famously sprawling slums? I mean, the city has some of the uh, largest slums in Africa.
2: Um, well, well, thanks. That's a that's a very good question. I mean, I think um, for many police officers working in Nairobi, um, many of the slum areas or ghettos or informal settlements or whatever title you'd like to give them, are seen as kind of the breeding ground for for what they refer to as as thugs. Um, and this concept of the thug is a very problematic one um, because it's something that's also used in the media discourse um, and created as this kind of the idea of the urban enemy. Um, That needs to be tackled. Um, So what you'll see a lot of times is that young men are killed by police officers and then are framed as a thug. And this also raises a lot of support um, among many Kenyans as well, um, that this kind of killing was justified because, you know, in this way, crime is being prevented, etc. So I think that this is one of the ways that the police... Um, particularly frame this as as an urban crime problem, um, and that this, uh, in a way, kind of justifies a lot of the extrajudicial killings that happen in many of uh, Nairobi slums is, of course, very problematic. Um, But at the end of the day, in many of my interviews with police officers, many of them don't like working in in a lot of these areas as well. So it's also, for them, a very problematic experience too. Um, And I think many police officers would prefer to work in more upper-class Middle class neighborhoods as well. So, it, I mean, there's always, yeah, there's a different perspective to that as well.
0: Mm. Alice, um, you have examined the issue of policing in Mogadishu, which, of course, is a city with um, a very different context than uh, Nairobi or Rio, where the problems we are discussing are amplified by the utter weakness of the Somali state. What are some of the challenges in building a police institution and in actually policing day-to-day cities like Mogadishu located in what we call fragile states or, you know, states affected by conflict and and very with weak institutions?
3: I think the example of, of, of Somalia and Mogadishu in particular is extreme. That in a way is quite helpful because it separates it from Nairobi or indeed Latin America. So it lets, it lets us look at the what you might call the fundamentals of, of policing. And that's actually important because one of the things that's very striking is that we're expected to look at form of policing in a society in which state and police institutions are simply a facade. If you look at Mogadishu, it looks as though, and certainly from the, new, the media, it looks as though there is a police force There are police buildings, there are police officers doing police business. In practice, it's a lot more ambiguous and fluid and also violent than that suggests. So I think perhaps the initial problem for certainly international commentators is to decide quite what it is this phenomenon of police is.
0: Tessa, we have seen some reports from Kenya about yet more abusive behaviour against slum dwellers during the implementation of the curfews and lockdowns during the COVID pandemic. Has the pandemic made things worse in terms of police, community relations, violence and all of that?
2: Uh, yes. Uh, well, I guess if I think if you would ask this question to a lot of the community members of some of these neighborhoods, um, I think they would definitely say that the situation has has uh, gotten worse since the um, pandemic. And I think what we see in Nairobi and perhaps in many other countries and in other parts of kenya as well is that the you know the covid-19 and kind of the regulations uh, towards the pandemic have been highly securitized so it's become rather than a health hazard it's become a bit of a, a it's framed very much as a security problem and the national police service of kenya have begun a very have been given a very prominent role in kind of maintaining the curfew Um, And this is, of course, very interesting that the police is largely responsible for kind of maintaining these regulations and that the Public Order Act has also been included in order to enforce these regulations. So, I mean, they're definitely, the police have been given kind of more power in a way to enforce the regulations. And this is unquestionably, um, yeah, worsened, um, already very fragile relationship between community members and police officers in, in many parts of the city, definitely.
0: Mm. And Inacio, violence in Rio has reached such a ghastly point that a court, I believe, had to order a halt in police operations in Rio's favelas during the pandemic, ordering them not to, to conduct any operations in the, in the favelas uh, out of fear that it would cause you know more deaths. Why did the courts have to interfere and has this changed anything in terms of police violence in slums?
1: Yes. um, Well, the court interference has two parts. One is specific to the pandemic, and then there's a more general part about how police conduct operations in the slums. So as far as the pandemic goes, the argument was that police uh, operations, customary police operations in the slums were causing a lot of uh, insecurity, of course, and they were even disrupting assistance efforts towards these communities because of COVID. So people had to stay at home, um, Uh, aid was being delivered and the police arrived, there was a shootout, people who were giving the aid had to take cover and the the aid assistance had to be interrupted. So the first part of the intervention was uh, there should not be police operations in the slums, in the favelas, as long as we have the pandemic, so that the other types of assistance can be delivered. And that was granted by the court. Um, and the in the police in Rio was forbidden from carrying out police operations in the Islam, except in exceptional circumstances that had to be justified. Now, the problem is, of course, the court did not, the Supreme Court did not specify what exceptional circumstances mean. And there was a lot of leeway to interpret that. Um, beyond that, there was a sharp reduction in police violence. Um, there was a reduction in terms of 70% in the number of people killed in police operations in Rio after this um, court order, and there was not an explosion in other crimes or in homicides. So that was very instrumental in showing that the uh, narrative of the government that we need to kill these people, otherwise the security situation is going to go out of control, was plainly not true because police operations reduced significantly and still the general safety operation did not change uh, very much in the city. That was the first part. The second part is a deeper challenge to how police conduct these operations in general, and it goes beyond the pandemic. And the court, Supreme Court is still voting on that, on that, but there is already a majority in the direction of imposing limits. For example, you have to have an ambulance, you can't do it close to schools or hospitals um, and things like that. Uh, we have also questioned a lot the use of these helicopters Uh, in attack operations. Um, We once questioned one of these operations a few years back, and I remember the pilot of the operation telling us that he was very proud that only in Afghanistan um, did they have, in in that case it was the U.S. Army, um, helicopters that were able to carry such operations as they did in Rio. And he was plainly very proud of that. So that challenge is still going on, and we have a high hope that if it finally prevails, we will be able to uh, introduce some limit to the damage that these operations uh, cause. Of course, this is, on the other hand, an invasion of uh, executive power because it's the the courts setting up a lot of limits uh, as to how uh, the executive power should conduct its business. And uh, because it's very technical, then the courts, of course, as I said before, did not explain what exceptional circumstances would be that would justify such operations under, under the pandemic. So it's a very abnormal situation, but the the um, the way that the executive has conducted these operations is so extreme that the, the courts finally have intervened and tried to, to put some limits to that. Um, ultimately, I think, Antonio... What we have is a crisis of the legitimacy of the the rule of law, because unfortunately, many people in Brazil voted for governments, both at the federal and the state level, that support exactly these kind of operations, um, and then regardless of what the law says. So I think beyond the technical issues or the legal issues, we have a much wider uh, social legitimacy issue about um, how police should conduct themselves. Mm.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, that's another area of uh, where Brazil has some cautionary tales for the rest of the world, since it's not, unfortunately, limited to, to Brazil. Um, Alice, uh, Somalia faces uh, COVID challenges like uh, all other countries, basically, in the world. But it also fights against the insurgent group Al-Shabaab. How has law enforcement there balanced the challenges of this war fighting uh, with, with those of day-to-day urban policing? And I'm not sure if you have any information on how COVID might have sort of compounded this challenge.
3: Um, a brief comment about COVID to start off with. Them. Um, I'm not sure what effect it's had and I'm not sure anybody really knows It will have affected police as much as residents. But bear in mind that actually um, health provision, in quotes, in Somalia, even in in the centre of Mogadishu, is minimal at best. Uh, If you go outside Mogadishu, then it's just one of many other issues. Uh, Acute watery diarrhoea, measles, respiratory diseases, you name it. It's just something else in amongst the mix. Um, The balance between al-Shabaab, and health-related issues, I don't think it's been fundamentally upset, upset actually, or changed. I'd be very surprised if it has, because al-Shabaab and the security issues associated with it, which are quite a broad range of issues, actually, um, dominates. Certainly in uh, meetings in which police, higher-ranking or mid-ranking police, are present, it dominates all concerns, particularly at the moment with so many uh, assassinations and other attempted um, fatalities. Um, I haven't seen any public open access Work on the balance, but certainly from conversations I've sat in on in on the past, I doubt very much if COVID is having that much of an impact. Not not on decision making, anyway.
0: What about uh, Alice? If I if I may ask a follow up uh, more broadly, the way that the embryonic, let's say, is too weak. Somali state has balanced the uh, the need to to have a police force that deals with issues such as. Uh, terrorism and and, and insurgency, uh, potentially preventing Al-Shabaab terrorist attacks in Mogadishu, and how has that impacted, I believe it has, but uh, impacted the sort of legitimacy and the way that it interacts with the population, sort of this, this dilemma between being a war fighting force or a law enforcement force.
3: Okay. yes. Uh, But do bear in mind that in most parts of Somalia, including Mogadishu, police are effectively almost militia, if not actually overtly militia. Um, If I can just give you an extreme example from further south, in Kismayo last year, there were some 600 police and 5,000 militiamen. And also the functional divisions uh, between the two um, are ambiguous, fluid, all all those kind of words. So it's not actually as clear-cut a situation as perhaps some commentators might expect.
0: In answer, if I may return to you, um, Rio has grappled with extreme forms of police violence for decades now. Uh, you know, I think we can go back to at least the 1980s when the cocaine transnational cocaine industry became really a, a, a multi-billion-dollar um, uh, source of income. Is there any potential light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, are there any lessons that we can uh, learn? Are there, any, are there any positive experiments or experiences in, in Rio that have um, improved, even if momentarily, uh, uh, the situation there that you know, we can share potentially with other cities and countries?
1: We've well, had a few attempts at community policing, mostly localized, uh, which had a reasonable impact, although they were discontinued. Um, and then we had the famous experiments of the pacifying police units for a few years, which um, reduced homicide rates in these areas by 50%. Um, So in that respect, and they reduced police violence even more than 50%. So they were, say, successful in the beginning, but um, their success was diminishing over time, and they ended up being discontinued. I think... At least they leave a very important legacy, which is to show that this militarized um, sort of combat against uh, crime is not the only way to deal with violence and insecurity in the slums. So in the future, despite the uh, final, say, uh, failure of the model, it will be remembered as an alternative that worked for some time. So I think that is very important. Um, In the short term, I don't think there are many hopes because, as I said, the political projects that took over both in Rio and in Brasilia as a whole are political projects based explicitly in exterminating alleged criminals. Now, today, this very same day, the governor of Rio has been suspended by the courts. Um, And that's an important development because something that people forget is that there is a close connection between corruption and police violence. So a significant part of police violence is associated with corruption. Um, drug dealers will be killed so that the next drug dealers know they have to pay up to a certain um, threshold. And otherwise, they will be killed. And uh, there is also a, a link between corruption and violence at a higher political level. So many of these candidates, like the governor of Rio today, who has been suspended because of corruption charges linked to the pandemic, um, uh, fraud related to the um, emergency uh, tenders that were provided because of COVID. um, Again, at the higher political level, there is also a connection. And these candidates that come to save the country and kill all the uh, criminals oftentimes really want to benefit personally um, through these positions. And I think if that is confirmed, which seems very likely, it may work to to delegitimize at least um, these candidates that promise social cleansing and then actually really want to to be rich like most other people. Um, The same to a lesser degree applies to the Bolsonaro family some of whose members are being investigated uh, for some kind of fraud linked to public funding in the state assembly. And um, again, if this comes to to the end and there are some sentences, it will come to prove once again that these broad speeches about social cleansing and eliminating bandits are just one more way to capitalize on people's anger and to become rich on the, on the backside. So I think the hopes for the future in Rio and in Brazil as a whole depend on bringing down this political project of extermination of criminals and building again some kind of civilized rule of law model, not just for policing, but for the country as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. If we may stay on the theme of uh, corruption, which is uh, very important indeed, uh, uh, Inazo, just a follow up. Um, Brazil, as you as you as you mentioned, has a long and dark history of contact with corruption and, and political corruption. Um, we we had the, the the big car wash investigation that uncovered uh, billions and billions of dollars worth in in corruption from state controlled um, enterprises. Um, has, has this anti-corruption sort of ethos that has uh, been so popular in Brazil in recent years, has it had any positive impact in terms of police? Uh, and more concretely, has, has, it, uh, has the police uh, improved in any way or had any positive experiences with anti-corruption and sort of, um, um, you know, co- co- correction units within the police to sort of tackle these issues?
1: there's no improvement in police internal affairs units, for example, or anything like that, because this drive against corruption was targeted at very high politic, uh, political and economic groups, and it was also very biased, oriented towards the left. Um, so now there is a fracture between these groups, and it's very apparent that many of those prosecutors and judges were targeting the corruption in the left, in, in the PT, basically. Uh, But I mean, as far as life on the ground and in the slums, for example, this is pretty much irrelevant because most of policing, everyday policing, is targeted at the slums poor areas. And what happens at the high level is um, completely um, irrelevant. So it's not going to have an impact on policing as a whole. It will have a very strong impact on politics in the country. And we are still to see what the final outcome of all of it will be
0: yeah Tessa um, the issue of corruption is yet another sort of parallel that I've seen uh, uh, between between what happens in Brazil and 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 in Kenya especially in terms of urban policing um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about uh, um, the, the issues that Kenyan police especially in Nairobi uh, have had with with corruption and sort of bribery is there the same type of sort of gang police relationship uh, uh, Working there, and again, the same question to you: Are there any positive examples in terms of um, anti-corruption? Any improvements that we can uh, look forward to?
2: Um, well, well, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely agree that corruption is also a very big problem in Kenya. Um, but I would also argue that it's not necessarily a police problem, um, but that corruption can be found. Uh, although the you know the state police is is seen as as maybe the co- most corrupt uh, state organization, I mean we see corruption uh, happening ha- occurring with almost all state organs, for example. Um, and so it's not necessarily only a police issue, but of course in terms of everyday interactions between police officers and citizens, this is definitely a fundamental problem. Um, and um, what I think that um, it's so ingrained within the organizational culture of the police, I mean, um, it starts from the moment that police officers enter the force. I mean, very often they pay to become a police officer. And where does this money come from? Uh, very often this is something that maybe is kind of um, found together. Uh, they kind of uh, lend money from somebody or they gather money from relatives and then they are indebted to them in some way. And um and this entire there was an entire vetting um, process of the Kenyan police that's been going on for a while, um, and you could just see these trails of money going from lower-ranking police officers to higher-ranking police officers. So, it's a very big problem that has tried to be addressed through a range of, um, of programs. But um, I think if you would ask uh, any Kenyan citizen. Um, I don't think that they've seen a decrease in the amount of corruption, and I think that everyday bribes and and these kinds of things are still something that many uh, Kenyan citizens face. Um, On the other hand, um, um, I do think uh, maybe this is moving a little bit away from corruption generally, but more what has been going on with the police. I mean, in Kenya, we've seen a very extensive police reform trajectory. Um, and I mean, Alice has also written about this as well. And um, there have been a lot of initiatives to, to transform the Kenyan police. And although I uh, concur with many of the um, critics that a lot of these um, initiatives have not you know, really achieved what they set out to do, I also think that there have been some improvements. Um, and I think even the most uh, critical Kenyan citizen would argue um, that there have been some changes. Police stations are more accessible, um, and and there have been changes. And I think maybe if there's time, I could just mention three really briefly. Um, so um, one of the things that a lot of focuses, there's been a lot of focus on police oversight. So through an internal affairs unit, uh, as Ignacio also mentioned in Rio, but also through uh, independent, the Independent Policing Oversight Authority, IPOA, which is an external um, um, organization. Um, and I do think that the establishment of these oversight bodies has had a tremendous impact. Um, again, there's been a lot of criticism against these organizations for not really setting out to do what they had to do, for not investigating properly, for, you know, not dealing with the amount of cases that they've been supposed to raise. But I do think that due to their investigations, um, several police officers have been found guilty of murder, for example. And I do think that police officers know that there is some kind of, there is an organization watching them to a certain extent. So it's maybe minimal change and a lot more needs to be done, but the mere fact that these organizations exist, I do think does point to a certain direction and potentiality for further change. Um, I think another thing what we've also seen uh, particularly last few years is the strengthening of civil society. So in many of Nairobi's urban settlements, we've seen the establishment of social justice centers that are documenting police violence, um and that are protesting against police violence. And and this was much less 10, 15 years ago, for example. So I think that there's been a much stronger civil society and really people that are really standing up and saying, you know, enough is enough of these extrajudicial killings. Unfortunately, so the police violence isn't decreasing, but um hopefully by the further strengthening of the civil society, there's again potentiality for change. And I think even just this space for potentiality is something look at and maybe a third issue and this is maybe related to corruption as well Uh, within the police a lot of focus has also been placed on police leadership um, and kind of seeking out um for lack of a better word good police officers whatever that may be but police officers that really want to um that want the police force to change and that really want to to bring a different idea of policing and investing in these police officers and and you know, providing them with education and somehow, you know, getting them in more leadership roles. And I think that this is key that eventually we need people in leadership, people at the top that really want change, because as long as those at the top are not going to encourage police officers for change, a lot of the efforts will kind of um, will disappear, or will just go unnoticed. So these are maybe three lessons that we could take from um, from the Kenyan case.
0: Sure, thank you, um, Alice. Um, in terms of still, still in the theme of uh, corruption, but of course, uh, in Somalia it has a particular <laughs> color and a particular um, a format that is different from 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 more sort of developed uh, economically developed countries. Um, the issue of militias that you've mentioned uh that police forces are uh sometimes comprised of militias instead of police officers is one that i also heard when i when i was there so this idea that um the officers many of the officers were not it's their allegiance and their workings will not be aligned exactly with the state or the government's sort of policies and priorities but rather with sort of clans and their personal patrons um this, this perhaps can be interpreted as a form of corruption, but it's certainly a, a, a corruption of the public uh, uh, role of, of the police. Do you, do, you, do you see any ways that the Somali state has or could sort of tackle this uh, fragmentation of, of the police force into militias?
3: The honest answer is that I don't believe the Somali state, in quotes, has any interest whatsoever. It doesn't have any credibility. It doesn't have the capacity. It doesn't have the desire to do anything about this uh, because it's so in, it's so involved. It's part of the fundamentals of, of this of the social context, if you like, the environment. And that as transparency, international, will tell you only too too clearly is, in our terms, deeply deeply corrupt. I think people, rec- many people at all levels of society, recognise this, though tends to be put to one side because they're too busy trying to live find food etc etc. Is there a will to do much about it? I don't really think so. Yes, there are some individuals who very much some police officers, mid-ranking education and so on who want to do something, who would like to change things, they say, uh, but it's very difficult to know what their agenda is, how their agenda is meshed meshes with that of donors, for example, who push this particular line. Increasingly, though, it's also part of the possibly subsidiary to the equality uh, agenda. Um, I just don't see very much changing. It operates at every single level of society. Um, I just don't see any will to do anything about it, not least because politicians are doing too nicely. I mean, actually, only today and yesterday and earlier this week, there were several cases of uh, reported of senior politicians losing their job and being in, um, imprisoned for uh corruption. It's great, I suppose you could argue that that's been taken forward, but does it really amount to very much? Is it any more than a gesture, Positive, possibly a gesture that to appease donors? It's its difficult to tell. I'd be surprised if, if it marks a fundamental shift in, in the general approach. But basic lesson is the Somali state in quotes, because that's what it is—a facade. Has no desire, no capacity, no genuine will to change anything. It's doing too nicely out of the current
1: situation.
0: Is—is um, is this state-building effort or the um, aid uh, that has been uh, for some, for some time, uh, many, many years, been uh, given by um, donors to Somalia to build and improve institutions? Has it had any any positive impact on on? Uh, sec- I mean, security is 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 very bad in Somalia, of course. But but if we look more narrowly at the issue of policing or security, Mogadishu, for instance, has it had a, a, um, um, an impact? Perhaps uh, um, um, improved somehow the this this dynamics that we're discussing.
3: Yes, there have been some, um, I think, quite impressive projects, small scale projects in in districts that, for a while at least, really did seem to improve police community relations. Um, seem to improve uh, what you might call public safety in small areas, whether they last, whether they actually make a fundamental difference once people shift, die, move or whatever is open to question. So at a very sort of micro level, I suppose you could say that donor money has made a difference but it does tend to be the the, the difference does tend to be superficial temporary um it's not fundamental it doesn't make a major shift it doesn't mark a major shift so in many respects as a british taxpayer my money's been wasted on the other hand if it's made life better for a small district uh, if it's stopped um what some rather gross egregious examples of brutality Corruption and so forth—that uh, may be as much as we can hope for. It sounds very—it sounds very dumb. I'm playing a bit of a wet blanket, I suppose. But it's a bit of time, actually, we were slightly more realistic in what our expectations are. Um,
0: Inacio, if I may return to you on um, one issue from uh, the Rio case that I've, I've been particularly interested in in, in recent years and um, for, for many, many years is, is the issue of uh, the pacifying police units, the UPPS, um, and. Uh, this is something that Tessa was also referring to: this idea of uh, community policing and improving um, the accessibility to to the police among among the community. And in the case of Rio, unfortunately, the pacifying police units, the pacification program, as as it was called, sort of has a bit has has declined in in both popularity and and impact. I want to gather your views on um, wh- why the pacifying police units have somewhat failed and and lessons you see for how um, efforts to uh, improve community relations could be sustained um, could be more sustainable in the long term because it's an effort that costs money so both for rio and for other cities out there or the large developing country cities um, how can they sustain uh, improvements in community policing uh, relationships between officers and, and the communities? Well, before
1: we get into that, Antonio, I'd like to briefly refer to something that Tessa said before, I agree with her also in the Brazilian case, that corruption is not just a police problem. It's a societal problem. It's a state problem. And the police officers will always tell you that. Uh, but in, in policing, it's particularly serious because police officers have a gun and the authority to use it. Um, so it turns particularly problematic. Also, uh, she was also referring to internal affairs and how it was expanded in the case of Kenya. In Rio, we're in the opposite situation because the first measure the governor took was to dissolve the Secretary of Public Security so that police forces are now accountable only to themselves and to the governor. There is not a single body to direct policies um, regarding to security or the police forces themselves. So it's very interesting how um, oversight is now going backwards in Brazil because of this political project. Um, as far as the pacifying units and the pacification project is concerned, I think the major reason for failure was that it always remained a um, an invasion project. So police would come into these slums and stay, which was good because it interrupted the shootouts uh, between criminal groups and mainly. The shootouts by police themselves when they entered the slum, So it stopped these invasion operation by the police um, in, in regular intervals, because police stayed there. But then from there, they never built a more um, community police model. Um, they called it, it was proximity policing, which is a similar model, that was never developed, in fact. So the police mistrusted the community. The community mistrust the police. And the police are never... I think this is the main lesson that we could try to propose for other areas. You may call it community policing, but if the local police is not accountable to the local population, it will never work. And it was never accountable to the local population. We were hired as consultants during during a certain phase by the government to propose changes. And one of the things we, we discussed among ourselves was, okay, there should be a vote, a secret vote in the community every few years so that the community decides whether they want the, poli- the police there or not. Now, there was, this was complete anathema to most people, like how are we going to leave it to the hands of the community to decide whether they want police or not? Police has to be imposed. Um, so there was never a way to make the police accountable to local communities. If you, if you can get to that, which is a huge challenge, I know, it's nothing easy, then I think it may work, so that the, when police make a mistake, when they are rough to people, there is a way to, to um, take measures, and the, the community has a way to change that. If you don't give the community a way to change that, I think it will perpetuate uh, itself. And now, as it was always the case in, in Rio, the community feels the police are there to protect other people from them. They never feel the police are there to protect them. And that's what we need to change. Mm.
0: Um, Tessa, in the case of Kenya, as, as Inacio was mentioning, the, the pacifying police units in Rio struggled um, for um, the, the entirety of the pacification program with this um, imbalance between policing and what we could call governance or development the provision of public services infrastructure that you can put as as many police officers as you as you can in a certain area, but if you don't bring the the rest of the public sector and the state into those marginalized areas um, once the police leaves you know the the space will still be open for criminal groups and and other uh, illicit economies and actors um have have you seen uh, um an improvement, not only in policing, or or a debate about uh, improvements in development in public services, because you know, slum areas like Matari, like Kibera, are extremely marginalised, and I've I've visited them, uh, and even more than 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 many favelas in Rio, like they're much much bigger, and their their needs in terms of sanitation, health, and public services are even more acute than, than those in, in, in many areas of Latin America. So have you ha, ha, has the state sort of uh, opened its eyes to this need of uh, development and, and governance in, in, such, in such areas?
2: Um, well, this is a bit of a difficult question because I'll also be really honest that this is not really an area that I focus on, but a, a very good colleague of mine, um, she does do a lot of work about this as well, and also about how, I mean, I completely agree with you that in many of these areas there's a general lack of public services: water, access to water, sanitation, electricity. You know, basic uh, needs for survival, and this is a fundamental problem. But one of the things that she's also uncovered in her work is that uh, the police are also very often involved uh, in, for example, evictions, or um, in when water is cut off. Uh, the police are also involved in these processes, so that the police are not only there, not only involved in crime prevention, or conducting investigations, but become involved uh, in kind of acting as the um, authoritarian force of the state in much larger problems that are are not really about crime and security in a way. And this is definitely a fundamental problem. And there's definitely a difference in this, because this is not the role that the police plays in the more middle class and upper uh, class areas of Nairobi. So there's definitely a different role for police officers in these areas. And I mean, I think I think there's so many similarities between Nairobi and Rio, from what I'm hearing from Ignacio as well, because, I mean, for a lot of it is many Mithari residents feel that the police is not there to protect them, but it's to protect um, other residents from them. Um, So so it's more and it's about containment in a way and about containing certain and maintaining certain um, class and ethnic and racial borders. uh, And the police is very much a, a key player in this um and so yeah i hope that answers your question a little bit
0: thank you very much um i think that's all the time we have uh today thank you very much to uh, all three speakers for um very interesting discussion and very international discussion on on policing which i think um is, is much needed in, in these times. Um, and thank you to our listeners as well. And this week I add a personal note. This is my last episode as a, as a co-host of Sound Strategic. Um, I will be uh, leaving the, the Institute uh, at the end of the month. Uh, to other endeavors but thank you very much for listening to us to me during this time Sound Strategic of course continues uh, with May Announce and um, thank you and to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and conflicts follow uh, the ISS on Twitter Instagram and other social media so see you next time